0: Father, please speak to us now, for your servants are listening. Please make our hearts and our minds attentive to what you would say and be magnified, be greatly glorified today as you speak to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 12, verses 27 to 36. This is God's word. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is God's word. To recap chapter 12, we've seen Jesus in the beginning anointed by Mary in really extravagant fashion as she pours out a year's worth of perfume all over him right before his death. We've seen the king's humble entrance where he enters uh, into Jerusalem to his own city as king, but he doesn't enter on a royal chariot or a war horse. He enters on a donkey in truly humble circumstances. And now we just read last week in verse 23, Jesus recognizes, as the Greeks come to him, that now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what we're seeing here, there is a link between what we've just gone over last week, particularly verse 23 and 27, where Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, that is now that this hour where I am going to be glorified, has come upon me. Now that this is happening, my soul is troubled. He is about to walk into the valley of humiliation, which is the cross, where the only way for him to be glorified, as was ordained, is through his suffering, through the shame of the cross. And Jesus is feeling this heavy upon him. And as the hour of his glorification fast approaches him, In this passage today, we see five aspects of our Savior in the lead up to this hour of glorification. The five aspects are we see the agony of our Savior, we see the resilience of our Savior, we then see the victory of our Savior, where as He is lifted up, He draws all people to Himself, and then we see the identity and the appeal. So, agony, resilience, victory, the identity, namely, who is the Son of Man, and then his final appeal. This is one of his last appeals in his public ministry, calling people to believe in him as the Son of Man and come to the light. So let's look at these five aspects today. Firstly, the agony of our Saviour. The hour of his glorification is coming upon him. He's feeling a heaviness. And so in verse 27, he says, "'Now is my soul troubled.'" He is greatly disturbed. It is an inner turmoil. We, we perhaps don't have English words. We would need a whole host of English words to describe the trouble that he is going through. It's like that feeling if you received a call and it was from a police officer and they said, sir or madam, it's about your wife or it's about your son or your daughter. And you have that sinking feeling because a police officer would never call telling you about that. And it's a sinking feeling like something terrible is about to happen or something terrible has happened. And what Jesus is feeling as he enters into this hour of his glorification where he must suffer is this inner turmoil, this deep trouble. It's a gut-wrenching agony. We see this clearer when we look at the the other accounts of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which this passage today is not in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a different time, but nevertheless, it's in the lead up to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is probably the more famous account of Jesus in distress, where we read that he is overwhelmingly sorrowful. He's in great turmoil, so much so that Luke records he sweats drips of blood. He has his face in the dirt as he's crying out, Father, if there's any other way, yet not as I will, but you will. We see the tremendous agony of our Savior. And what is this agony? What is this agony that we see Christ experiencing? It is the agony of this valley of humiliation that is the cross where he who has never sinned must take sin upon himself. And he who has never experienced a moment of hostility or a bad relationship with the father, all of a sudden must experience the father's wrath upon him. For us as sinners, it's difficult to feel the weight of this, but perhaps not meaning to give such a crude example, but it's perhaps one way that we can experience just a taste of this agony that he goes through. Imagine being forced to walk through kilometers and kilometers of thick sewerage, full of human waste, full of dead animals beneath, You're walking through cobwebs with thousands of spiders. The only way that you can go through it is to slowly trudge your way through. It's a putrid smell you're throwing up. It's naturally detestable to think about this. It's detestable to think about walking through kilometers and kilometers of that. Perhaps it's your only way to freedom, but you must walk through that putrid, horrible sewerage, and it should be detestable For us, because we're supposed to be marked by cleanliness. We're not supposed to be marked by that. Now that is perhaps the tiniest, tiniest taste of what Jesus goes through, for for him it is detestable. It is detestable to take sin upon himself. It is detestable repelling to take the Father's wrath upon him. This perfect, eternal, harmonious relationship all of a sudden has to be broken in one sense by wrath being poured out from the Father to the Son. The Son who has only ever done what pleases the Father. The Father who has only ever loved the Son and continues to love, but in that love he must pour out his wrath upon him. And so for Jesus, the agony that he experiences, the fact that he must walk through this. He must experience the full extent of this. So he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. So it's not as if Jesus was going to abandon that, though it is detestable for him, though it is repelling in one sense for him to take sin upon himself. He was not going to abandon the eternal plan of redemption that he had made with the Father, but What we see here is this is showing that Jesus felt every bit of emotion and temptation to avoid this. Think about that. He felt every bit of temptation to in some way avoid this hour of glorification so that he would not have to take our sin upon himself. And in this agony, a flood of emotion naturally sweeps over him. But Jesus demonstrates his perfect resilience. His perfect resilience as he perseveres. So he says, no, 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 no. This is the reason I am here. The purpose I am here is to come to this hour to accomplish redemption. And I will persevere through it all in order to accomplish this grand plan of redemption that the Father, Son and Spirit together had covenanted to Now here we see the second aspect. We've seen the agony of our Savior. Now we see the resilience and we see the resilience in the request that he makes in this lead up to the hour. What is this request that Christ makes? Well, you would think his prayer naturally might be something like strengthen me to achieve this purpose or even in his weakness, maybe something like, Father, make this just a little bit easier for me. Just lessen the load a little bit. But his prayer is, Father, glorify your name. That's where he finds his strength. Father, glorify your name in this moment of agony. Glorify your name. The Father's name is is his reputation. We know that experientially from when... The the phrase comes about of someone's name being tarnished or someone's name being dragged through the mud. It's to say their reputation has been ruined, regardless of if it was that person. If someone has a prominent family name and someone else does something horrible, all of a sudden that whole family's reputation is tarnished. Their name is tarnished. And God cares deeply about His name. Think of Ezekiel 36. God rebukes Israel But he promises restoration and he's very clear to say, hey, Israel, it's not for your sake that I'm gonna uh, liberate you. It's not because of you. Actually, you have blasphemed my name. You have tarnished my reputation. So for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, I am going to vindicate the holiness of my great name. I'm going to restore you. And it's going to be because I love my name. That is, my reputation must be preserved. So God is saying he's going to make sure his reputation is preserved as almighty God. And here Jesus prays for God's reputation to be honored by preserving him through this hour to accomplish the redemption that had been planned before the foundation of the world. And in doing this, the incredible thing is that it is the most selfless way that Jesus can pray for himself. It is the most selfless way that he actually prays for himself. It's not a prayer that is directed primarily to himself, but the byproduct of Jesus praying, Father, glorify your name, the byproduct of that is that Jesus himself is going to be strengthened through this request. Why is he going to be strengthened? Well, it's because there is such a union between Father and Son that if the Father's name is glorified, then the Son naturally shares in that glory. Jesus will go on to pray in John 17, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. So he's saying, praying for his disciples, Holy Father, keep them, that is my disciples, in your name, that name that you have given to me. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Jesus has the name of the Father because he is one with the Father. So if the name of the Father is glorified, then the Son naturally is going to share in that glory. The Father's reputation is on the line in that sense. And so Jesus will be preserved and strengthened Through that. So, in the greatest of agony, Jesus' resilience is seen that his desire above all else is that the Father's name be glorified. Whatever happens, Father, make sure your name is glorified. Make sure your reputation as Almighty God is kept. And Jesus knows that in the Father being glorified, he will also be preserved through this hour of suffering. Now, here is a wonderful application for us in our own prayer life a beautiful, liberating application for us in our prayer life in a similar way. We are preserved. We are preserved through moments of agony and moments of suffering by praying above all else that God be glorified. Now, this is a hard thing to do but we are preserved because if we can link this back to our passage from last week remember in verse 25 jesus says whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life that is to say the way that you preserve your life is to die to yourself that's the way you preserve your life you hate your life in this world now what does this look like in prayer in prayer Dying to yourself looks like in the moment of greatest need, in your moment of deep suffering. Your desire is not primarily relief from suffering, though that may be a part of it. Your desire is not primarily your own comfort. Your desire is that God be glorified above everything else. And that's what it looks like to die to yourself in prayer and to actually preserve your life. Here is where we find the most life. The most life is found in dying to yourself. Life is no life at all when we simply seek our own preservation or our own comfort. We desire above our own comfort that God's name be glorified. And now here is the great comfort in this that we see Jesus modeling here. Just as Christ shares the name of the Father. So we who have called upon the name of the Lord share in the name of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a little Christ. We share that name. So if we bear the name of Christ as we are praying that he be glorified in a similar way, we can take great comfort in knowing that we will be preserved through our suffering because Christ is very invested in our life because he has chosen to give us his name upon us so we know we will be preserved in some wonderful way. We see this in Daniel's prayer. If we can recall about a year ago when we were in Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel is praying for Jerusalem which has been destroyed. It's been decimated by the Babylonians and all of the Israelites, at least all of the good uh, Israelites who are worth something, are off in Babylon. The city is destroyed and Daniel is praying for its restoration. And he finishes his prayer by saying, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. That's the basis of his prayer. He's saying, don't do this for our sake. What a foolish thing to pray. God, we're worthy for restoration, so restore Jerusalem. Daniel's prayer is not self-interested at all. He knows that there's no grounds that he can bring to say, haven't I served you well, Lord? haven't I done all of these things? Therefore, can you restore Jerusalem? No, he says, don't do it for our sake, but do it because this city and your people bear your name. Your reputation is on the line. You've called us your people and we're destroyed. And it doesn't make you look good if your people are completely destroyed. It, it makes you look like you couldn't preserve us. It makes you look like you couldn't save us. So Daniel prays, do it for your name's sake. And that is the liberating reality that we can have in prayer. There is a great boldness that we can have in our suffering as we're praying for God's name to be glorified, and we're saying, do it for your glory. So in moments of despair, when we lose a child, when terrible grief happens, we pray, God, glorify yourself in this. Make my heart full of adoration in some way towards you while I'm in this pit of despair." Well, well, I've just lost my child and I'm in this terrible state. I feel hopeless, but lift me up. Do it for your namesake, because I bear your name. So make my heart full of adoration towards you or moments of uncertainty, Many of us in this community in uncertainty, waiting for a job, waiting for a a relationship, waiting for whatever it may be, and our prayer ought to be something like God, glorify yourself in this moment of uncertainty, bear fruits of patience within me, bear fruits of patience within me, because that makes you look glorious when I'm waiting upon the Lord. And in desperation, we are praying that. We're praying, Lord, will will you provide this job for me at some stage so that I can be a diligent worker in the workplace and honor you and make you look glorious through my patience as I wait. We're praying for the Lord to be glorified above all else. So our strength and resilience in our agony is in the way that Jesus is modeled here, in the way that Daniel models, is not primarily directed to ourselves, but directed toward the glory of God. And then the wonderful comfort that we have in that is knowing that as we do that, life is found because God will preserve those who call upon his name and seek his glory above all else. This is the most selfless way that we pray for ourselves. That is the reality. Now, as we turn to the response of Jesus' prayer. He's prayed, Father, glorify your name. The voice comes from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Here is quite simply the Father's stamp of approval. Very similar to other times we hear the audible voice of God saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Well, here we hear a similar thing in different words. This is the father crying down, I have glorified it and I've glorified it again, which is to say, here is my beloved son, my chosen representative, the one that I've set my seal upon, the one that I've set my stamp of approval upon. This is why Jesus says in verse 30, this voice came not for my sake, but for your sake. People need to know the son is the Father's representative. He is the way, the truth, and the life, the only one, God in the flesh. Jesus, of course, knows that he has the Father's approval, but it is the people around who are listening to this who must know that he is the Son of God whom the Father has set his seal of approval upon. Whether or not they clearly understand, we can see that there's some confusion here as to exactly who has said this or what has happened, but what is clear is that surely those with ears to hear understand that this in some way is the Father's heavenly thunderous approval upon the Son. To say, Him I have set my seal upon. So as Jesus says, this voice came not for my sake, but for your sake. He now directs us to his purpose, which is where we see his victory. So we've seen the agony of the Savior. We've seen his resilience in that his request in this agony is that the Father's name be glorified above all else. And now we see the victory. From verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And verse 33, John tells us that this idea of Jesus being lifted up is referring to his death. The cross, of course, being lifted up refers to his exaltation, but here we see that it refers to the cross where he is physically lifted up in humiliation. And this is the wonderfully counterintuitive reality of the cross. This is just so amazing that the man, Jesus, who so many believe would be the, the Messiah who would lead Israel to victory in a physical, political sense, the one who would then overthrow the Romans, he is lifted up on the cross. He is mocked and scorned and humiliated. And all of a sudden, people's hopes are gone. And it looks like defeat. It looks like horrible, humiliating defeat. And the counterintuitive God-glorifying reality is that the cross that looked like the greatest defeat was actually the greatest victory. At the cross, Jesus triumphs over sin as he takes it upon himself and he puts death to disgrace as he rises from the dead. So although Jesus must go through the greatest of agony, he knows that it is the pathway to the greatest of victories. So he says it is time for the ruler of this world to be cast out. This is part of what's happening at the cross. It is the victory of Christ over sin where our sin is p- placed upon him for he is the one who lived the life that we could not live and we see victory in that righteousness comes by trusting in the fact that Jesus has lived the life that we could not live and has taken our sin upon himself but there is this other element where at that at uh, that moment of the cross the ruler of the world is cast out this is talking about Satan himself the devil the demonic ruler who leads so many astray But at the cross, Jesus triumphs over Satan so that he has dealt a great blow of defeat. This is what's happening. The ruler of this world is cast out, excommunicated. It is not a final blow. Rather, the language is one which describes a removal of influence, a casting out. So Jesus says, the time has come for the ruler of the world to be cast out to be dethroned, to be removed from power. Paul describes this in Colossians 2.15, where he says at the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's what happened. Jesus disarmed or cast out the ruler of this world who had control. It's a borrowed control. He never has full control, but a borrowed control where he is influencing many people's and at the cross, he has dealt a great blow because the goal of Satan is, of course, to condemn people in their sin. The goal of Satan is to throw darts of accusations to say to people, you are not good enough. Or sin is a much better lifestyle. And his goal is to condemn people in their sin. But at the cross, the victory is that God condemns our sin in the flesh Which completely nullifies the power of Satan. This is the victory that because Jesus has taken our sin upon himself, and then God has condemned that sin in the flesh of Christ, there are no more accusations the devil can hurl at followers of Jesus because every bit of guilt and condemnation has been consumed by Christ. This is the victory. And what's more, this victory is not simply going to be seen in Jerusalem. It's going to mean redemption for the whole world. So Jesus here says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This is the victory that if we can remember the context of this, Jesus has said in verse 24 last week, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it does fall into the earth and die, it bears much fruit. Well, what happens at the cross? Jesus takes our sin upon himself. He dies. And all of a sudden, within the space of a few hundred years, the gospel has gone out to millions of people. It's the fruit that comes as a grain of wheat falls into the ground. Let's remember the biblical context of this. For for thousands of years before Christ walked on this earth, the God of Israel was worshipped almost entirely by Jews. There were hints here and there of people from the nations, God-fearing Gentiles who would come, but really the God of Israel was worshipped almost entirely by Jews and the rest of the nations, the surrounding nations around them, were almost entirely marked by pagan idolatry. Very few worshipped the God of Israel. And so Jesus comes in and He says, right, now is the time for the judgment of this world and now is the time for the ruler of this world to be cast out, to be dethroned, to be sent away so there is no more influence over the nation so that the people that I have purchased from every tribe, tongue, language and nation will now come to me as I am lifted up upon the cross and the message of that cross goes out to the nations and all peoples will come to me. And if we skip forward, then 2,000 years later, here we are in about as far as you can get from Jerusalem. People from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, at least a lot more than simply ethnic Jews, worshipping this risen Christ. This is in fulfillment of what Jesus has spoken about. Let us just feel the the weight of this now that Jesus said 2,000 years ago. I'm going to be lifted up upon the cross. I'm going to draw all people to myself. Well, this is what has happened for us, brothers and sisters, being drawn to the crucified Christ. Here in the pits of Tuggeranong, worshipping the risen Christ after that message from Jerusalem went out to the ends of the earth. And so although the devil today continues to corrupt and destroy many people, he has been cast out. He has been dethroned. This is to say that he has no authority over the nations. And every time someone turns to the Lord, it is a reminder to Satan that he is drawing closer and closer to that final blow where he will be cast into the lake of fire. And every time someone turns to the Lord, it is a reminder for us that Christ is the one who is throned. He is the one who is king. He is the one who is ruling now. And so this leads us to our identity. We have the agony, the resilience, the victory that we rejoice in. Now the identity of this victorious one. The crowd hear this and they say in disbelief, hang on. We heard that the Christ remains forever. So why are you saying that the Son of Man must be lifted up? They recognize that this is about his death. They know that much. And they say, they also recognize that the Son of Man is linked to the Messiah And they naturally think the Messiah is supposed to be eternal. The Messiah is supposed to reign forever. So why are you talking about the Son of Man being lifted up? Their question is not so much one of confusion over the name Son of Man, but rather it is confusion over what type of Son of Man is Jesus saying that he is? What type of Son of Man? What what kind of man is this that is going to show his glory by dying? What kind of Man is this who can cast out the ruler of this world and draw all people to himself through death. What what kind of son of man is this? Well, some of us will be familiar from our time in Daniel 7 last year. And for a, a brief recap, Daniel 7 is this picture where we have the title son of man. Son of Man is given throughout the Old Testament, perhaps the most dominant identity associated with the Son of Man, certainly one which was associated with many of the Jews at this time, is this identity that is from Daniel 7, where in Daniel 7 we have this scene of uh, effectively gruesome beasts coming out of the ocean to show all of the worldly kingdoms that are ruling over people, and they're meant to be seen as grotesque and distorted, and then this picture of the Ancient of Days, the ruler of this world who comes in and he, he sits in his judgment seat over and above all of these beasts. And then there is this figure of the Son of Man, the Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days. And we read in Daniel seven thirteen, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion. Glory and a kingdom that all people's languages and nations should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom will never be destroyed. So that's the picture of the son of man. This was the true hope of the people of Israel, that this son of man figure who would come to the ancient of days is going to establish his kingdom. It's going to be indestructible and completely dominant and all peoples will serve this person. Now, the problem of the Jews is that they hadn't studied their scriptures carefully enough to see that Jesus, in all that he is talking about, is perfectly consistent with the Son of Man of Daniel 7. Think about it. Daniel 7 shows the judgment of these rulers. It's these beasts that are rising up out of the the ocean, all of these worldly kingdoms, and they are going to be judged And the son of man comes to the ancient of days and he receives dominion. That's authority, glory and a kingdom. Now think about what we've just seen in the life of Jesus. He has just entered Jerusalem as a king in the triumphal entry. He has just established himself as the king. He has just announced that the time for judgment is right now where the ruler of this world will be cast out and he's going to be glorified. It's the same themes that we see of the Son of Man receiving dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And then who is the people that will serve the Son of Man in Daniel 7? It is people, it is all peoples, nations, and languages, which is basically to say everyone, both Jew and Gentile, are people from every tongue, tribe, language, and nation. And what is it that Jesus says, or rather, who is it that Jesus says he is going to draw to himself at the cross He is going to draw all peoples, which in the context of ethnic Jews is to to understand, well, not simply Jews, all peoples, every tongue, tribe, language and nation to himself. So what type of son of man, what is the identity of this son of man that Jesus is associated with? Who is this man? Well, he is the true son of man foretold back in Daniel 7. He is this one. He is the true Messiah of Isaiah 52 and 53, who will be exalted and glorified through suffering, being a lamb led to the slaughter. And he is the true and better son of Adam, thinking all the way back to Genesis, remembering that Adam means man. So Jesus is the true and better son of Adam or son of man that was foretold all the way back in Genesis 3, where it was told after Adam and Eve fell that there would be a son of man, a son of Adam or a seed of the woman who would crush the head of Satan. Jesus is this one. He is the one the scriptures had always spoken of. He is the promised son of man who receives this kingdom. where all people's should serve him. And finally, as this Son of Man, as he reveals his identity, he gives this last appeal. We see in verse 35, Jesus says, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. This quite simply carries a sense of urgency to it. There is meant to be a sense of urgency. Jesus knows it's the last hour in the sense that his time on earth is drawing to a close. And if we look ahead to verse 44, which we will cross next week in John chapter 12, Jesus gives this one last final cry and it's his last public appeal. After this, he is going to be privately spending his time with his disciples and then he's going to go to the cross. And in his last appeal, Jesus says, he cries out rather, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. That is the father who has set his seal of approval upon the son. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The point is for Jesus to say the lights are about to be switched off. Darkness is about to come. You can only see when the lights are on. While I'm here, there's light. So believe in me. The same sense of urgency we feel today, that Christ could return at any moment. The same sense of urgency to call people to believe in the Son of Man while there is light. It is a merciful final appeal that Jesus gives here that remains significant for all peoples of all times. And we see particularly here in his final appeal before Darkness covers the land as the the creator of the world is crucified. And he stretches out his arm of salvation to say, Come to me as the light of the world. Believe upon me. And what is the purpose? What is the purpose here? Where Jesus says, Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. The idea of becoming a son of someone is that you share in that nature. So Jesus calls the Jews who were antagonistic toward him sons of the devil because they were devilish in their nature or James and John are called sons of thunder perhaps to, because they were thunderous in their nature. The son of someone is that you take on that nature and those who believe in Christ become sons of light, which is to say they take on the nature of light. They become little Christs, which is the fruit that Jesus spoke of in verse 24, as he is the grain of wheat is buried into death and fruit comes, which is to say the fruit of Christ is that little Christ will multiply and continue to reflect his glory all throughout the world. See, what a gracious thing. Think about this. Think about the graciousness of our God, who when we were sons of the devil, under the ruler of this world, devilish by nature, he would not only save us, but he would make us to then become like him to be not only made in his image once, but then to have that image restored so that we who trust in Jesus Christ would become sons of light, would take on that nature of light, that the things that we do could actually reflect his goodness and his glory. What a gracious thing that we who are once marked by darkness can be marked now by light, which reflects the glory of Christ. So here in our passage, as we finish, we see the agony of our Savior. We see His resilience, which leads to victory. And we see His identity as the promised Savior foretold all throughout Scripture. And then His final appeal, His last gracious appeal. And as Jesus goes through his hour of suffering. Let me just give four quick exhortations based upon what we've seen here today for our own moments of distress and suffering. Number one, remember the agony of our Savior. In our own agony and suffering, remember the agony of our Savior. Remember his tears. Remember his face in the dirt in Gethsemane, pleading that there is any other way. Remember his deep distress, where his soul is greatly torn apart, where there is this inner turmoil. Remember his agony, remember that he has done this in your place, that he agonized in our place to live that life of complete obedience that we were supposed to but could not and remember in our own agony that to this day and forever Christ intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father in our agony. He is upholding us. What a gracious thing to know in our own agony and tears, in our moments of uncertainty and grief, we have a Savior who knows exactly what it is like and who upholds us in those very moments. Remember the agony of our Savior. Secondly, be resilient in prayer by seeking the glory of God above all else. Often God will lead us into the school of prayer, which is best taught through moments of suffering. That is the best place to learn how to pray. And if you want your prayer life to be full of despair and lifelessness, if you want your prayer life to be full of monotony then make sure your prayers are only ever directed toward yourself if you want your prayer life to be full of life and vibrancy then direct your prayers to the glory of god they will come around to yourself but direct them toward the glory of god Pray for yourself in the most selfless way by desiring above all else that God be glorified and take great comfort in knowing that you bear the name of God and that He is glorified as we call upon Him in our day of trouble. He delivers us and we then return that glory to Him. What a gracious transaction that God has ordained for us. Thirdly, rejoice in the victory Christ has over sin and Satan. What a simple truth that we so often forget. Just as the cross seemed like total defeat, but yet turned out to be the greatest victory the world has ever known. Many times today we feel a sting of death and evil. We hear the stories of this world of babies. Just this week, I, I saw a photo of uh, the war in Israel and Gaza and there was a father standing over his dead body, looked about the, same size, uh, the body of his son, uh, who looked about the same size as Louis and just standing there over his child in a body bag. And just what grief can overcome us in those moments. And in weakness, we can feel defeated. But we rejoice in the victory. The ruler of this world has been cast out. He has been dethroned. The evil principalities of this world have been disarmed and Christ reigns victoriously now. He laughs at the wicked for he knows their day is coming. More than that, Christ has triumphed victoriously over your sin so that every accusation that comes your way, every feeling of doubt, every attempt of the devil to say, you've sinned too much, you're not a Christian anymore, your guilt is too high or too great, and we remember that it is all null and void. The power of Satan is nullified because Christ has taken our condemnation upon himself. Who can bring a charge against God's elected as God who justifies? And furthermore, it is Christ who died, as if to say, there's nothing the devil can do now. Your condemnation has been taken in Christ. And so we live in victory now through all of our suffering, through all of our struggles. It is victory, just as the cross looked like defeat but turned out to be the greatest victory. The life of followers of Jesus trudging their way through the mud of life and yet not losing heart, pursuing the glory of God, pursuing holiness, trusting in the Lord, that is victory. We rejoice in that victory. And lastly, the final appeal. We believe in the Son of Man and we become sons of light. We must again and again hear the appeal, both for those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ and those who have, to come to the light, to live as sons of light, to reflect the glory of God in our lives, to believe in the light and to become sons of light. So we remember the agony of our Savior. We are resilient in prayer by seeking the glory of God above all else. We rejoice in the victory Christ has over sin and Satan. And we believe in the Son of Man and become a Son of Light as we simply look upon the face of Jesus Christ, as we behold His glory and reflect that same light which has shone into our hearts.